Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and the world has continued to raise their voices up in the aftermath of a number of incidences here in the U.S. A lot of this is being attributed to the response around the killing of George Floyd and being respectful of all of the other incidences across the country in the last, I don't know, couple hundred years, but also just recognizing that there are multiple incidences that have led to a lot of the protests for systemic changes going on and building on our conversation from last week about ally work being a action and not just a statement. Adding to our conversation today is Dr. Travis Heath. He's a professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. And thank you so much for joining us and lending us your experience and your expertise with this. Thanks for having me. The timing sort of uncanny. I think we were planning this even before this most recent iteration of the world exploding, but however it happened, I'm glad I'm here at this particular time with the two of you. I'm so glad to have you here. And I'm also glad that you're going to be speaking at our Therapy Reimagined conference on some of these issues. I just so appreciate your reaching out to us and becoming part of this with us, our Therapy Reimagined stuff, which is awesome. But the way that we always start our our interviews is providing an opportunity to let us know who you are and what you're putting out into the world. Yeah, that's a cool question. I think, well, I'll locate myself in terms of my own background. So I'm a transracial adoptee, which is an interesting uh, psychology and identity in itself. So my birth father was what's called pardo in Brazil, which is a mixed race, right? So it means Brazilian, indigenous, African, and European. And my mother, birth mother, was of European descent, right? And so that locates me in sort of an interesting place anyways. But in this particular time in our country's history, it's like my, my body sort of represents, uh, as Marcella Polenko would call it, the colonized and the colonizer, right? It's my body mm-hmm. sort of a mix of that, of the oppressed and the oppressor. So that's, a, that's an interesting psychology to carry anyways, but I think particularly at this time. I'll also, I mean, I guess I'll give you a little bit of the professional background. So I'm a licensed psychologist. I, I have a master's degree from Pepperdine University out in Southern California there. And then I have a PhD from out here at University of Northern Colorado. 
have a small private practice, I'd say 12 to 15. They all, I don't know if you have the same experience. It always gets a little bigger than I like think that maybe yes. it should be, right? <laughs> it should, I should be eight to 10, but I'm more 12 to 15 is just how it goes. But I'd say about half of the folks that I see at any given time are entangled in the criminal justice system in some way. And then, you know, I also work with couples and families. I get bored easy. So I see a whole <laughs> bunch of different folks. Perhaps pertinent to some of where our conversation might go today, it's interesting because I also work with law enforcement. So I have uh, who, law enforcement who, by the way, don't want to see the psychologist in the department because they don't feel they can be completely honest with the psychologist in the department, mm. right? Which I talk, we'll talk, we'll talk about systemic problems, but perhaps there's just one <laughs> small part of a systemic problem. So it's an interesting place to be because I work with people who have been victims of violence of the state. And then I work with people who are parts of organizations who have perpetrated that violence all at the same time. And then lastly, in terms of introducing myself, I'll say, Um, When I was 16 years old, I myself was a victim of police violence. The story I told, well, an abridged version of the story on my Twitter feed, I don't know, in the last week or so. Uh, But I feel that important to share because I've had the experience of having a white police officer with his knee in my back and having that sensation, that physiologic sensation of not being able to breathe. And so I've spent much of the last week protesting. It's strange because the Denver police would say, well, there's a curfew. Like, you've got to be out of here by eight o'clock. And then the police chief said, well, the curfew is mainly to deal with the protesters. Well, I was protesting and seeing people in my office on the same day. So I, like, how does this pertain to me? Mm-hmm. Like, am I going to be harassed driving home? I mean, because, you know, you're allowed to be driving home from work. And I was also protesting that day. And so I just bring this up because I think I owe it to you and your audience to be transparent about how I'm positioned, especially in all of this kind of madness that's been taking place in the last week or so. And I will echo again that this is sheer blind luck that we had Travis on our schedule this week. (laughs) That we, in a lot of our content coming up here in the next couple of months, we'll be exposing all of you to many of the people who are going to be participating in Therapy Reimagined this year. And that's where we had originally scheduled Travis. And I didn't know any of this background stuff about you know some of your experiences here and you know i know you from kind of the questions that we send back and forth and kind of digging in a little bit online doing the you know fanboy stalking you online sort of thing but that it just kind of makes you know some of the the professional work that you're doing uh, around therapy as a political act being something that i was thinking a couple of weeks ago that we were going to talk about in kind of this more conceptual way, but man, this has taken so much more of a space in our offices and our practices just immediately. Can you guide us through what, what you mean when you say that therapy is a political act? Yeah. Uh, thank you for the question. I think, look, our, our history, I suppose, in psychotherapy is diverse in certain ways. And There are different perspectives, and I'm not saying everyone assumes this perspective of neutrality, but traditionally, it would seem that therapists have largely been taught to be neutral. And I think that's problematic on a number of different levels. The first is that we're not neutral. Like, most of us have positions, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, even if somehow you were 100% neutral, I, I don't know a person like that, but if you were. That in itself is a political position. (laughs) Neutrality is a political. You could be neutral about the events happening in our country right now. And that is a political position, 
right? And so neutrality does not absolve you of, of taking a position. So the first thing I'd say is we're not neutral. I, I guess then the next part is kind of, and to be neutral is a great privilege, by the way. Not all of us sure. have the privilege of being neutral. Now, how does this manifest like in therapy? So I hope that the I'm, an, uh, I'm informed by narrative therapy, right? I've had the great uh, luck, really it was luck in a lot of ways. I can tell you this story another time of, of bumping into David Epstein and then having, having him mentor my practice, one of the creators of narrative therapy. But as someone who's informed by narrative therapy, I ask a lot of questions. And most of my questions to the people that come to see me, my clients, they're interrogating the systems of which we're a part, right? So if, if, some, if somebody comes to see me and I'm asking questions about state violence, that's a political act, right? Because I am anti-racist. I am against state violence, right? Now, I think if you were to listen to some of my questions, you know, my questions are not like, tell me why you think we should abolish the state. You know, uh, I, <laughs> these are not my questions, right? I mean, my questions are more subtle and nuanced, which is getting people to consider the ways in which these systems are putting pressure on their lives, right? That, that maybe it isn't as simple as good guys and bad guys, right? You know, and then it's, if I could just deviate for just one second um, to talk about this political part in your question, it's not just about police violence, the violence of the state, that's very, very heavy. But also where I see this all the time, like women I work with, the ways in which women's bodies are politicized, right? How women's bodies are supposed to be shaped, how much they're supposed to weigh, interrogating these sorts of things alongside people, right? And, and sort of going, well, okay. Like I'm thinking of one woman and I share the story with consent who was upset because she was eating peanut butter, you know, and she said, well, I eat it out of the jar and this is bad, you know, and I said, well, how did you come to understand this is bad? Like, where did you learn this was bad? When did you decide that? She goes, well, I don't know. I never decided that. Well, I was like, well, did you, when you came out of the womb, did you know that eating peanut butter was bad out of the jar? And she said, no. I said, well, how about your teenage years? At what point did you consent to this idea that this was bad, right? And then I could take you down some other questions, but see, to me, that's therapy as a political, political act because what we're doing is we're interrogating those systems. Now, that doesn't mean that people, uh, look, sometimes the systems we have work for people and that's, that's okay. I mean, if it's racism, I'm not sure that's okay, but, no. um, you know, uh, but, but Hey, I will say this, it's a person's right to hold a racist belief. If they want to hold that belief, I probably won't be a good therapist for them, but you know, whatever, if that's the belief they're going to hold. Okay. But my job is not to, I think this is where sometimes there's some confusion is not to enforce a party political agenda onto anyone but rather to interrogate the systems at play so that then people might be able to see those in new ways or see them with a little more clarity. To me, it sounds like making a conscious decision based on critical thinking versus blindly following a system because that's the system that's in place. Yes, I agree. And I think often it's things are happening beneath the surface. They're covert, right? They're taken for granted, we just assume this to be true. I'm thinking of my work with men, right? Where like when I had, you know, my kids are a bit older now, eight and almost four. But when I had little babies, men would find it wild that I could watch a football game while holding my child. It's like I could do this masculine activity, traditionally a storied masculine activity while also being nurturing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, but these, these quote unquote, well, air quotes are bad for podcasts. So I'm making little air <laughs> quote, uh, fingers here, but, but, you know, you know, truths, these truths, we often don't think about them. It's not that 
people don't want to critically think, but they don't know that there's anything to think about. If it's an absolute truth, what is there to think yeah. about, right? But if we interrogate that a little bit and we begin to break it apart, well, now we, we have some interesting directions we can go with it. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. You talk about kind of these different aspects of, of people who come to your practice and especially with some of the personal experiences that you've had and even being challenged as a therapist in your own beliefs as clients are bringing these kinds of concepts into your space. You're, you're talking this great you know, narrative approach of being able to challenge their systems, but you're also talking about not being this neutral blank slate sort of thing. How are you managing where that, I mean, you're, you're walking, talking intersectionality of so many different things, but in those particular moments, how are you able to respond to that and uh, be there for your clients while still holding true to these ideals that you're bringing? Yeah, another great question. So I'll give a specific example that I think is germane to what's happening in our society right now. So imagine me, a person of color who is, uh, you know, of uh, mixed ancestry, but part of that ancestry is African, working with a white police officer, because this is happening in real time with more Mm -hmm. than one police officer. Okay, so then a a very fair question is like, well, how do you how do you manage that? Because you've been the victim of this violence, right? And you are working with people who also have been. Well, see, this is where I, I, my belief in a systems approach, like the systems to me are not just a metaphor, right? Like my belief that systems uh, help author our identities. And if I believe that, like we, we, with cops, we do this bad apple thing, which is really weird to me. Like it seems grossly inefficient too. even if you wanted to get out of my weird system talk, like we're just going to find each bad apple and pluck them out. And I I look at this a little differently. I I think that when you have a toxic system, it can take even the best apples and infect them and turn them rotten. Right. And so I then don't look at this cop, for example, as an evil person. I look at this cop as being part of this system. Right. It just like the woman I was talking about earlier with peanut butter. It's not Mm -hmm. as though this cop was born evil. Like I don't get into this good and evil thing. What I get into is trying to understand the systems. And so how can I sit with someone with very different beliefs is I can really in my office. I almost this might sound bizarre, uh, but I have sort of two couches that are uh, 
almost connected at 90 degree angles, right? And wherever the person is sitting, it's almost like I make places for these different systems that I identify as I'm listening, right? And these systems are sort of sitting with us and they've helped to form this person's identity. And so that I actually believe that. And so that makes it a lot easier than it's not something that's inherently evil within a person. If, if we're dealing with something like racism, even it's something that is toxic within the system. And then I can, I can meet that person. And, and by the way, if they can be infected by this, they can be uninfected. And maybe that's part of my job is to begin to have those kinds of conversations. I would imagine that those conversations would be very enlightening, being able to really look into how this person in front of you is interacting with the system, how they perceive the system, what the decisions they're making within that system. To me, it seems like it's really trying to get into their perspective so that there's an opportunity to then get into those those deeper questions where they're critically thinking about how they want to to do those things versus assuming that they're true or even if they recognize that the system is flawed that they that they actually feel empowered to do something different because i i would imagine there's a lot of people and i'm thinking mostly bystanders or people that are kind of further removed from the the overt acts that are fairly conflicted, or at least that maybe that's me being very hopeful, but fairly conflicted with how they're interacting with this oppressive system. Yeah, it is enlightening. And see, I think to be able to do this work well, I'm not only learning about their relationships to systems, I'm continually learning about mine, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in this new book we're working on, uh, there's a chapter of uh, me working with a Trump supporter. I'm not a Trump supporter. This requires something of me too. It requires mm-hmm. me to look at some of my biases and how they've been formed and my relationship with some of my systems, which doesn't mean I have to give up my positions, but boy, would I be a hypocrite if I don't at least look at some of how some of my relationships with the systems, right? So it's enlightening on multiple levels. Certainly I learn more about them and what's going on with them, but in order for me to ask questions that are going to be of any value, I also simultaneously have to be sort of interrogating myself and, and my own uh, beliefs, which, you know, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm going to think like racism is good or something like that. I mean, there's a, <laughs> we're, we're dealing, we're doing anti-racist work all the time, at least I am, but it's heightened now, right? Because of what's going on. It's been, it's been brought into the public consciousness, but that I think is always and should always be a part of our work. And, and by the way, well, you're a person of color. Well, yeah, but um, see, here's the thing. Uh, and a friend of mine, Navid from San Diego State, told me this three or, three or four years ago. It's just great. I carry it with me. He goes, if you are part of like the dominant system of psychology, you are functioning as a white man. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what, what your actual background is because the systems were created by white men. You're functioning as a white man. So if all I'm doing is reproducing these same ideas, which I'm not saying aren't with are, are without any redeeming value, but they are Eurocentric ideas, right? Yeah. And if all I'm do is, doing is reproducing those, it doesn't matter what my racial or ethnic background is. It doesn't matter the hue of my skin because I'm reproducing these same white systems. And I think, you know, to, to build on this is a lot of therapists here in the last couple of weeks have essentially learned about anti-racism for the first time, have 
adjusted or are struggling to adjust where they are as far as not being in part of the bigger social political systems of racism, whether that's moving from colorblindness to trying to really take some of these steps there. We also, in a lot of countries that have kind of these very strong systems, people tend to lose out on this enthusiasm once it falls out of the news cycle. And for a lot of this work to really change, to really continue to challenge and decolonize therapy in this way, how do we keep this conversation going to actually make lasting change and not just have this be kind of the enthusiastic thing that everybody's behind for a few weeks or a month here? This is a great question, and there's a lot to it. I'm going to do my best to kind of address it as systematically as I can. We don't need any more, and this this phrase, social justice, is has become a little tired. Like if everybody's doing social justice, nobody's really doing social justice. It has to be on a cutting edge to really be social justice. But I'm going to use that term because everyone's familiar with that term. We, we don't need more social justice theories. We've got many of those. We need more social justice practices, right? And so, I, I, and there are many. I'm going to share with you a little bit about how I do it. It's not the way to do it. It's just our way, okay? And, and I, the reason I'm going to share this is because then maybe it gives people a framework to carry this past the news cycle, right? Where they go like, shoot, maybe I can actually practice some of this in my, in my practice. So, Multicultural counseling, I'm going to start with that term, and then I'm going to move into the term decolonizing that you brought up. Multicultural counseling, this seems to be like the gold standard. Even when I was a graduate student, I recognized something that didn't quite sit with me and how it was being explained, but I couldn't identify why. Maybe I'm a bit slow, but it took me about a decade. And then what I started to notice is like, oh, what multicultural counseling essentially is, and Makungu Akinyela, one of my mentors, uh, was instrumental in this, like, Multicultural counseling takes Eurocentric ideas, right? And it basically says, hey, those of you not from European backgrounds, come heal in our Eurocentric uh, models of healing, which is like, okay, like, that's a nice gesture, but I'm not sure how effective that's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's remnants from colonization, right? I mean, you think about colonialism or what it really is, you're talking about like a nation that... Uh, sort of asserts control over another nation economically, politically, et cetera, okay? And then the act of decolonizing, I mean, I could say so much about this, but I'll keep it brief, is sort of uh, restoring that, which rightfully belonged to the colonized. But here's the problem, and I'll speak just for our country in the United States, we've never really done that. Like, we sort of just put some laws on the books, we put it in paper, but we don't put it in practice, which really doesn't do much. And so, there has never been a decolonizing process that has has happened. Now, then us as therapists in the field of psychology, psychotherapy, counseling, social work, all of these helping fields, like we, I think we would be naive to believe that our field isn't isn't problematic in the ways in which it embraces certain colonizing ideas. Like give you a quick one. And I don't mean to pick on CBT no, go go right ahead. Go right <laughs> we ahead. Have a, we have a whole ep- episode called "Is CBT Crap?" So we're, oh, we're, I'm gonna, we're with okay. You. I'm gonna give that a listen. Um, <laughs> now, hey, I'll acknowledge it can be helpful for folks, but th- this is an idea of the mind, and then it's psychotherapy attending to the mind and solely the mind. The idea being that if you change the way you think, then you'll sort of fundamentally change the way that you are in the world. I mean, I'm 
CBT therapists would say it's deeper than that, but I only have so much time. <laughs> Why isn't therapy an act of um, the heart and soul, right? And for many cultures around the world, that's what healing is. It's more of a heart and soul practice and it's less of a mind practice, mm-hmm. right? And so if we are working with people and we are taking these uh, prescriptions, if you will, I mean, not medical prescriptions, right? But just these one, two, three, here's how you should heal yourself. That could be really well-intentioned, but it's it's very problematic because we're ignoring the context of the person. So here's my alternative with the idea of like, how do we carry this forward? Now, the phrase I've been using is preferred mediums of healing. Perhaps not everyone comes to therapy to heal, but just we could change healing into whatever it is, the preferred mediums of whatever yeah. it is they're coming to therapy to do. And what this is doing, and we, we might call this cultural democracy, right? It, it's allowing people to speak on behalf of their own healing. Now, what I find, to be honest, just to be very pragmatic about it, it's so much easier and so much more efficient because at the beginning of my practice, I would give them these prescriptions, whatever they're supposed to do, right? And then they'd come back and the usual outcome was mediocrity. You you know, some people are being nice to you, but they do that thing where they're like, well, it was, yeah, it was helpful, but you heard in their voice like, that's BS. (laughs) It was not helpful at all. And then, you know, you're more honest. Clients would be like, it wasn't helpful. Uh, but very rarely was it not helpful at all or supremely helpful. It was, it was remarkably mediocre. What I found when you ask people about preferred mediums of healing, which can be, this can be done, this kind of conversation can happen across cultures in some really cool ways, but sometimes even within culture. So even if you know, you're a white therapist working with a white client, I still think this applies because people have knowledge about the ways in which they prefer to heal. They often don't realize it because no one's asked them. But if you can go through a conversation with them, then they can heal. Now, so the decolonizing work in therapy then, or one way to go about the decolonizing work is to allow people to speak on behalf of their own healing to like, do we, psychotherapy has been around what a hundred or so years, you know, healing has been around a lot longer than that. I mean, why uh, are we so arrogant to believe that these other cultures had nothing to offer people in other time periods and cultures? Like, you know, sometimes ancestral knowledge can uh, be so significant that, and much more significant than our sort of modernized knowledges. Now, my, but again, my job is just to engage them in a conversation and try to, through my questions, find what's going to work best for them within within their context, within their cultural traditions. And when you allow people, first, sometimes people are confused, especially people who've been therapized. You know, they've been to like a lot of therapists. They're confused at first, but then it's like, oh, okay. And like, oh, I really, the job is how do I elevate the knowledge of the other, right? How do I elevate that knowledge as opposed to elevating the knowledge of psychiatry and psychology and whatever else, you know? I think the piece about that, that is empowering to me is that it really provides an opportunity to see the other person and to really understand them in a deeper way. Because I think when we step into the role of expert, giving them a prescription, this is what you should do. I think that maybe early in the relationship that can feel helpful. Here are some tools that you can take with you. Here's something that might make you feel a little bit better. But I was so struck by this idea of mediocrity because I think it it truly keeps you at that place where the only thing that you're really doing is kind of making it not as bad. It's not really allowing this 
and I like the word healing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that word too, but I think it's not allowing for this idea of healing. It's for being okay. Mm. And so being able to tap into their own inherent abilities, their own instincts to do that, that just seems very, it's very exciting. I think that the question I have is with folks who are struggling to identify what they what they typically do or feel really without any resources or thoughts how do you how do you get to that place where they're able to do that that's a great question and i i just want to say that i do have expertise my expertise though is not in prescribing specific ways of being mm-hmm. it's in asking questions right that can tap in and elevate the knowledge of the knowledge of the other so i do have an expertise sure uh, sure and that's the expertise i carry right and so when people cuz people will come and they'll want tools and i'll say i don't do tools uh, i said this to someone just the other day i said i'm sorry i don't do tools i said uh, i do like co-create things together like i i'm i've done this long enough and i you know i'll say this with humility to people like Look, I've done this long enough to think that we'll probably be able to co-create something together, right? But I, um, you know, but I don't have the tool because I don't know you. Like, how the heck do I, would I know what to do when I don't know you? And then, you know, there's another level of this, which is if you're a person who has been oppressed at the hands of the colonizer, right, there's no place for your knowledge. And so when you start asking questions about that knowledge, there's almost a liberating effect, right? Because now it's this knowledge that wouldn't have been taken seriously or, or uh, wouldn't have even been called knowledge, you know, or, mm-hmm. or healing. Now that's allowed to spread its wings. And, and then part of my job with the PhD and the licensed psychologist and all that nonsense behind my name, that's where that's helpful because now I'm standing in support of that, right? I, I'm, I'm endorsing this idea of going forward with, you know, these knowledges and, and um, because often those knowledges get stifled by people with my credentials, right. And my, well, well, that's not really helpful. Uh, And, and, you know, but, but boy, I don't do a lot of the doctor stuff and the, the, you know, PhD psychology, but in these instances, I will sort of endorse, uh, endorse their local knowledges with all of my credentials, right. And stand behind them with all of my credentials. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. You didn't come to these ideas during your training. And one of the areas that you do speak about is just in, you know, my, one of my big passion things is changing the way that therapists are educated and changed. How did you come to these and what do you, how, how do you come to these conclusions and how do you see us being able to introduce this earlier in people's trainings? So that way we're not stumbling out of the blocks and providing mediocre therapy and, doing good work from the beginning? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. I'm going to do my (laughs) best to be as succinct as I can be. So no, I did not come to these ideas during my training. I am very fortunate. You know how I did? Because people that had the wisdom of decades worth of working took me under their wing. 
You know, I remember there's a woman named Vicki Reynolds. She works up in Vancouver area. She's incredible. You can just Google Vicki Reynolds and find her website. I remember coming across her for the first time, like 2006, I was in a PhD program. You know, I was, I was a neurotic sort of mess of a PhD student as we often are. And she took me aside. It was at a conference in Vancouver. And she said, Travis, one day you're going to get out of this place. And you're going to have to go out in the world for five years and learn how to be a fucking therapist. <laughs> and I was like, like, I got it, but I didn't really get it. Right. Like I, I, you know, I got it up here in my head, but not in my heart. And then five years out in the world, I was like, Oh, like I get it. Right. And so then, you know, I have people like Makungu Akinyela, David Epstein, who have taken me under their wing. Now this idea about how do we change the training? Like what David Epstein has really done for me is he's apprenticed my practice. It, it was, you know, like I imagine how many of our ancestors did things as you were apprenticed in a practice. Okay. So I don't know if it's this way every place, but I think it's this way a lot of places, at least anecdotally, from what I hear. I haven't read empirical research on it, but I never watched a single professor of mine do therapy. That's bizarre. Like, like, Okay, put it in a different context. Now, I don't know anything about surgeons or whatever, but this is the example I like to use. Imagine there's a senior surgeon and a junior surgeon, for lack of a better way of saying. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that the junior surgeon goes into the surgery room, let's say heart surgeon, and the senior surgeon stays outside and dubs feedback on a tape. And they're like, oh, watch out. That's the aorta. Like, that, 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 that's bizarre. Like, this is, how, this is how we train therapists. And, you know, I no, and I don't say this out of ego. I, I say it because I wish I had it. But I, I teach in an all undergraduate institution now, right? But when I, it's interesting. Like, when I go overseas and they have me do, not like workshops for therapists in the public, but like they bring me into a graduate school. Over in Europe and other places, what they do is they have a client that I get to see and it's fantastic. It's great. And then they get to see the work and they get to see the imperfect. See, because they have this idea that if I came all the way from the United States, like I must be this really great therapist. <laughs> and it's like, I'm a therapist. I mean, I have, I think I can do a good job, but I think part of what makes me a decent enough therapist is that I interrogate my own practice, that I'm critical of my own work. And so we should, if you're talking about reforming this, like, okay, go back to how do we do anti-racist work? Not by standing behind a mirror as a supervisor and checking a bunch of boxes. Mm -hmm. I get my backside in the room as a supervisor, professor, whatever, and I go first and I interrogate my own work and I look at my own biases. And then what I, what I, and, and not because I'm some master therapist, but because I owe it to them because I have more experience than they do. Yeah. I owe it to them to go first. I have to be in the fire too. Then I come out and I interrogate my own practice. And then in a way that is honest, but hopefully compassionate. And I hope that invites the same spirit where we can hold one another up when doing this work in a way that's accountable and also honest. But I look, and maybe it's just me. Maybe, listen, maybe folks who listen to this show will be like, my program's exactly like you're describing. Great. I would be so yeah. happy. I don't, I don't want to be right and say most programs are this way, but that's my sense, at least in the United States. And so if you want to practice decolonizing, anti-colonial, uh, anti-racist work, you know that when you see it. You don't know it through checkboxes, right? Yeah. Um, well, and, and what, what's weird is like, you know it when you don't see it. Like, like when someone brings something <laughs> racist, and you're like, ooh, that's, but then what is it? 
to me, we in this field, we do far too much telling and not enough showing. And when, when we can show the practice, and this is what David Epstein and others have done for me, but David really led the way with this. It was, a, it was an apprenticeship. And it was not just about therapy. It was about it being a person. <laughs> you know, it was about like just, I mean, to, to this day, he apprentices me in so many different ways. And, you know, like when I started doing more speaking, he started talking, well, you know, you should talk to your partner and let her know that these are some of the pitfalls of this. And if you're going to be away from your family and your kid, like it was an apprenticeship that went beyond just what I was doing in the therapy yeah. room. Like it valued me as a human being. And I, this is the last thing I'll say on this. I know I've been talking a lot here, but there's a lot to say, to be frank. I learned more. And this is, this is not, I'm not trying to trash the places that I went because again, I think this is systemic. It's not yes. like, oh, the individual places I went to graduate school are bad. I don't mean that. I, I think it's just, we're sort of bogged down in ways of doing things that are archaic, but I learned more in six months of being apprenticed by David than I did in eight years or whatever the heck it was of graduate school about really being a therapist. Now I learned a lot about theory in eight years and I learned a lot about like waxing intellectual about stuff, but <laughs> I didn't learn a whole hell of a lot about practice. And so I feel like Look, I'm not a philosopher. That would be fun in a lot of ways. I like philosophy and theory. I'm a bit of a theory nerd, but that does, theory doesn't do therapy. Therapy does therapy, right? And so yeah. we need to be apprenticed in the practice. You're talking about apprenticeship and being a person and really looking at all of the elements of it. And certainly stuff that Kurt and I've talked about is kind of this whole person therapist. Like you're bringing yourself into the room, you're you're, you can't help but be impacted in the therapy room by what's happening outside of the therapy room. And I know that I've definitely been thinking about, especially black therapists this week, but a lot of BIPOC therapists and, and how doing therapy this week has a different element to it. I don't want to, I don't want to take words out of anybody's mouth. So I will just leave it there. So I, I want to open this opportunity for you to talk, to speak to that in any way that you think might be helpful for our audience. Yeah. First, I want to say about that, that often what gets considered therapy, like I've got told by people, well, that's not narrative therapy. I'll say good. Like, I don't, okay. <laughs> like, I don't like, or that's not even being a therapist. Well, you know what? That might be a compliment in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. like, I don't really care if you consider it to be therapist within be, be doing the work of the therapist within your doctrine. You know, my job is to uh, promote healing, right? I, maybe it's other things, but let me just use that word for point of conversations to promote healing. And that means that I'll be out in the community, a therapy session that I did this week to uh, uh, folks that I see together that are entangled in the criminal justice system have both been victims of police violence. We went marching together at the protest. Now, I'm sure I get all kind. this is not ethical or that. No, it would be unethical to not do that in this room. Right, mm -hmm. right. It would be unethical to not. And so I think part of this is we have to think about what does it mean to be a therapist? You know, uh, it's not always just a conversation sitting in an office, not to say that that can't be generative. It absolutely can. And I do that. But, you know, a lot of times doing the work of therapy for me is it's, a, it's community work. I'm out in the community. I'm not always in my office, right? Now, 
to, to the question that you were bringing up, Katie, I'll say we have to support one another. You know, there's a young brother that I know. Uh, I had met him when I was in San Diego at San Diego State, Eric Anthony, and he's working on the south side of Chicago now. And, you know, just checking in with one another and just going, how are you doing, man? Like, do you need anything? Because it's hard right now in the South. I mean, it's hard a lot of places, but it's really hard there. It's often hard there. I mean, he's doing important work. It's really hard right now. And so we owe it to one another to check in and just say, hey, man, are you doing okay? Like, uh, how can I stand in support of the work that you're doing? Do you just need to talk? Like, I'm here. I'm here for you to talk. Right. And I just want you to know that. So we have to we have to support one another. And too often, I think therapy becomes this individual individualistic job right when really the work eric's doing in chicago and the work i'm doing in denver and the work my friends are doing in los angeles and other places this is a broader community work we're connected in doing this work right and and what he's doing is going to teach me about what i can do and what i'm doing is going to teach him about what he might do and we can inform one another and so i think providing that support in these moments is is really important and that can come in so many different forms. For me, it's just, I just check up on my people. and I just see, mm-hmm. like, what do you need? How are you doing? And you know what? I'm fortunate because they do the same for me. And that sustains me because I'll tell you, this last week or so has been exhausting. Like, it's exhausting to go protesting and get flashbangs thrown at you and get tear gas thrown at you when you have two hands in the air and you're not a threat to anyone, you know? Like, that's yeah. exhausting. So, so, and not that everyone needs to protest. People just need to show up, show up in the way that you show up. <laughs> like, I don't, I can't tell you how to show up and, and it doesn't have to be protesting. It's, there are lots of different ways to show up, but we can't look. The only social media I have is Twitter. And to me, it's just a free associative tool that I try to use to make people think, or better said, maybe to make them feel about things, yeah. right. And reconsider them. That's how I use the tool. And that's fine. Maybe that makes some difference if people reconsider things. But that's not where the work is. The work's out there in the world. And there's many different ways that we can do it, right? But I guess the last part in answering your question, Kate, is we've got to show up in the ways that, like, this is a personal issue to me because of what happened to me when I was 16. So, you know, it's personal. But even if it hadn't happened to me personally, it's an affront on my community. And when it's an affront on my community, then it's a front against me, right? And that's that sort of collectiveness that even in these moments of being exhausted is is what sustains me is that I'm not doing this alone, right? I'm doing this collectively. Where can people find your Twitter? So that way they can free associate with you. (laughs) Yeah. That was all the different places they might be able to connect with you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the only social media I have. So my social media is just DR Travis Heath. So DR Dr. Travis Heath. So DR Travis Heath is my Twitter. I don't have the Facebook or any of the rest of it. Twitter's good because I can get in and out. I mean, I guess you could scroll all day, but that seems like not a smart move. So I don't do that. (laughs) I just get in and out and just put whatever I'm thinking. So that's a good place to maybe get in touch with like some of my wild ideas. And then, you know, you can always email me. So my email address is my last name, Heath, H-E-A-T-H and first initial T. So Heath T at msudenver.edu. M is in Michael. So msudenver.edu. My email, it's a little wild right now. So I may, please, if, you, if I can be of service in some way or you're interested or you want to critique what I've said, that's fine too. It just might take me a little while to get to you. I'm a little, a little backed up. I think like everything going online, 
like my email was already a little bit of a disaster yep. but now it's I'm a little behind but I promise you I'm not blowing you off if you email me I will get back to you and we'll include links to Travis's contact information and some of the references that he's making in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. While you're over there, check out how we're reimagining the Therapy Reimagined Conference. We're coming to some decisions on how that's going to be playing out here in the next couple of weeks. So check out our website for the latest updates on that, where we're going to let Travis have the floor and bring all of these ideas out there in a little bit longer format and please come and join us in whatever virtual way that you can. We're saving those dates, September 25th and 26th. So until next time, I'm Kurt Withelm with Katie Renoy and Dr. Travis Heath. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.